Welcome to the 42nd episode of Governance Uncovered, a podcast produced by the Governance and Local Development Institute at the University of Gothenburg, supported by the Swedish Research Council. My name is Sara Björnvall, and I am excited to let you know that we are introducing a new podcast format this month. From now on, you'll hear three shorter segments from three different guests on current events, academic publications, new research, and policy-targeted content. So, in this episode, we'll hear from Ruspe Parsi on the protests in Iran. Is it a revolution happening or not? Then I spoke to my GLD colleagues Khader Hussein and Thabit Jacob about the Policy Roundtable series GLD and Alternative Policy Solutions recently held on climate change and environmental justice in the MENA region. Finally, Ellen Lust met with GLD associate Lauren Honig to talk about her new book on land titling and customary authorities in Senegal and Zambia. We hope that you enjoy this new episode as well as the new formats. And if you're interested in working with GLD, head over to our website. We have a lot of opportunities out right now. When recording this, it's been about one month since the Iranian protests erupted after Masha Amani was killed in custody by Moral Police. We will now hear from Ruspe Parsi, head of the Middle East and North Africa program at the Swedish Institute for National Affairs. He and Ellen will talk about how the protests in Iran have spread across the country and from being primarily joined by women and girls to now everyone from school children to worker strikes taking hold across the whole society. Ruspe will also give us insight to how he sees Iran as a post-revolutionary society, both in terms of generation and in its social sensibility. My name is Ruspe Parsi. I head the Middle East and North Africa program at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. And I'm a historian in training, worked for a long time at Lund University. Wonderful. It's great to have you with us. It's, it's Thank great. You. Um, maybe to start by describing how the protests have spread and particularly where in Iran we're, we're seeing them most now? Well, as you mentioned, when uh, Mahsajina Amini was uh, killed, died in custody in Tehran, at some point someone managed to take photographs of her condition when she was in hospital and then she died. And that sparked widespread protests because the impopularity of the headscarf, the compulsory headscarf rather, is quite widespread. And I think if you look at it generation-wise, you can see that the younger generations in particular have absolutely no, no patience for it, as it were. And I think there it's important to kind of remember the process through which this happens. That is, you know, if you go back to the early 1980s, compulsory headscarf was much stricter in terms of what it meant, in terms of what you wore and how you wore it and what would happen if you didn't wear it properly. And then with time like with many other things, as this society has kind of gone its own way, uh, while the state still stands still and, and insists that everything is kind of revolutionary and, and very strict and so on, they have fought tooth and nail to kind of uh, inch away from those strictures. So what is considered to be a hijab, to be a headscarf today, is something totally different than 20 or 30 years ago. And in many places, people bear witness to the fact that they don't really wear them. You know, they have them around their neck. Now and then they might put them halfway up their head if they feel the need. But in general, it's a kind of a cat and mouse game when there are so many mice that the cat kind of most of the time gives up. And there is that in itself is a bit problematic because it means also that the enforcement is very random, which I think makes the oppression of it 
even more clear because it's random. One day you can walk with your boyfriend in a park and no, you know, holding his hand and no one cares. The next day you're walking there alone and, and your headscarf is equally down as it was the day before, but suddenly this is now a crime and you, your parents are called, et cetera, et cetera. So that randomness, that arbitrary way of enforcing already unpopular and in many senses, very illegitimate rules just kind of heightens the sense of injustice, I think. And then there's that generational thing. So the generations now basically take this for granted in the sense that, you know, there is no such thing as a full hijab unless you're very religious. But for most other people, that's no longer, it's not on the map, as we say in Swedish. It's, it's not something that's going to happen. And that means that the reaction, the visceral reaction to this kind of, of thing, like when she gets, when she dies, is proportional, if you will. We also have to remember that the new president in Iran, Ebrahim Raisi, was elected last year in a very, if you will, strange and, and quite curated election, is someone who has been campaigning on the platform of a return to much more conservative and strict rules in general, and for women in particular. And during his tenure, the morality police, as they're called, have been much more active. I usually make the comparison to Black Lives Matter. Everyone with any modicum of understanding of statistics know that if you're African-American, your encounters with police in the United States are totally different than if you're white. But it's a different thing to see it in a video film. You know, if someone managed to capture what that encounter looks like, rather than just being a number in a statistical survey, you understand the depth of it. And it's the same thing here, that in the last six months in particular, we've seen more people picking up their phones to film what happens when girls are caught by the morality police. So their general brutality and the fact that these girls, and usually their parents if they're around, resist, which then generates more violence from the morality police. So all of this, which is in everyone's everyday life, also becomes something that they can share in a very clear way. It's not someone telling you a story. You can see it for yourself. So I think these things are very important for, for why the reaction now is different than, say, 10 years ago. And then, of course, more or less statistically, you can say everyone has a wife or a sister or a daughter. So far that men have been peripheral to this, they haven't really, but at least a bit more removed from it than women, obviously. They are in the midst of it now. And I think that also speaks to, again, the, the, the fact that Iran is a post-revolutionary society. This is a totally different society, both in its generational makeup, in its social sensibilities. 20 years ago, if someone would have said, let's go and, and help stray dogs, you would probably have been laughed at. Now there are people who do that. They put it on Instagram. There are movements for all kinds of things. These are sensibilities that tell you that Iranian society has changed. A lot of people now would not go and watch a public execution. Uh, while 30 years ago, if not normal, it was at least something that was part of the picture of how the state performed the meeting out of justice, supposedly. So these are things, I think, that kind of come together and tell you that this society is in a totally parallel universe to at least large parts of the state. And these issues like the hijab, which touches everyone one way or another, kind of triggers that chasm that exists between them. Yeah, Sorry, it was very long. One, no, that's great. And one of the things that I think this really kind of highlights when you're talking about the visibility of the cracking down of, by the morality police 
is also the visibility of wearing the headscarf around your neck. There's a sense in which you also can see that others in society agree with you because it's not only you know the one woman who's wearing it around her neck, many are wearing it around their neck. So you can actually visibly see the resistance to a more conservative approach. I think that's Very also much. an interesting part of this story. Absolutely. Then I wonder, like I said, there's at least reports that the crackdowns on the Kurds are even more violent or more aggressive than they are in other parts of, of Iran. Many people may already sort of know about the relationship between the Kurds and others in Iranian society. But if you can give us a sense of why that's the case, but also a, a sense of the just the diversity in Iran that, that exists. Well, I mean, Iran is a multicultural society and a multilingual society and has been forever because of where it is in, in one of those many proverbial crossroads that, that human geography uh, and actual geography kind of have. The difference, I think, is, of course, that Iran has had, I wrote my dissertation about this, a, a very successful nationalist project that's been going on for almost 100 years. So it has been very much part and parcel of the whole idea of a modernizing state to create some idea of homogeneity, or at least an ideal of homogeneity that you can aspire to, and if you can, force people towards. And that means that minorities of various kinds have suffered under this centralized, highly centralized state idea of what Iran is and how you need to conform to that idea. And so here you have continuity. Uh, it's one of those things where people think a revolution changes everything, but actually it doesn't. And this nationalist project and this idea of an Iran, as a social fact, if not as a historical fact, is something that definitely is a strand of continuity between the monarchy that existed until 1979 and the Islamic Republic. So that means that even though, and we see that in the Iranian constitution of 1979-80, is that you have more rights for minorities of various kinds, like many other things in that constitution, they're not uh, practiced. So here again, we see the discrepancy between what everyone agreed on as a kind of a social contract when you actually end up getting. And you can see that reformist presidents have reached out and tried to some degree to open up for minorities in terms of using their own language, etc. Usually foundering along the way, but also their politicians, like everyone else, to some degree, it was a way of getting votes. It didn't mean they're going to do everything they promised those voters. Um, so that exists. But also, I have to say, as someone who did write a dissertation on nationalism, but do feel a certain sense of, of uh, nationalism myself, is that Iran is also a country that has had bouts of secessionism and the danger of being broken up. And that is not necessarily always a realistic fear, but it is nonetheless there in the national psyche for those who care, and they are not few. So that is also one of the things that potentially, and already does to some degree, splinter whatever opposition exists to the Islamic Republic. That is, that they are in themselves also not in agreement, actually, on you know whatever they're going to replace this system with, how far will it go in allowing autonomy or in the, not independence, but what kind of autonomy will they offer those minorities who tend to also, to some degree, to geographically be on the periphery of the state and the country? The Kurds are a case in point, and they're a particular case, because when the Allies occupied Iran during World War II, and when they left, the Soviet Union stayed on for almost a whole year. And during that year, when they occupied parts of Iranian Kurdistan and Iranian Azerbaijan, two republics, two independent socialist republics were declared. And that was the most tangible, if you will, manifestation of that someone 
actually does want this country to break up. And so that is a ghost for those who believe in that territorial integrity. And for some Kurds, to be frank, they see it as something that was uh, pretty good and, and, you know, was a step towards some kind of independence. So there is that whole gamut of we want to stay within the system, but under what conditions to those who would prefer to go outside of it. And what the state does now is, in a sense, fearing this using violence, but also using violence in order to be able to say this is the danger as a way of splintering whatever opposition exists. That's fascinating. And of course, if you think about the the Kurds in Iraq, then you can see a place where they actually have more autonomy. And so it's not just a specter of from the past, but it's actually one that that's visible elsewhere in the region at the moment, right? That's that's part of it, too. But it's not to say then, and I I guess this is what I want to, to confirm with you, that there's some ways in which the Kurds are more progressive, less likely to be conservative than than other parts of the society. It's it's more about this section, the fear of secession and the fear of splintering. Is that correct? That's that's the way for the state to posit what the issue is. I would not be the one to judge whether Kurdish society is more or less progressive. I think for them, as much as it is about a Kurdish young woman who died in custody, with everything that comes with that in terms of collective memories and so on, it's also about a central state with which they have a very, very uh, contentious, to put it mildly, relationship. I think the important thing here to also remember, as always, when we're trying to kind of generalize and understand is, is, you know, this state and this country could not have existed if everyone was constantly in opposition with everyone. That somewhere there is a functional minimum, at least, that makes it tick. And that means that it's a bit like when you were discussing, you know, how did the United States become the United States? It's not like everyone in the 13 colonies decided that a constitution and revolution was a good idea. A lot of them were actually against it, and quite a few of them went to Canada instead. And so here as well, I tend to be a bit, you know, put a pinch of salt on everything in terms of supposed solidarity and unity, etc. It's what people want, some, usually the ones who are vociferous, and that's fine, but it's a bit too easy a story to claim that we're all in agreement on everything. Great, that's super helpful. Are there other parts of the country or segments of society that we should be watching, either in terms of where we expect that there's more pressure and movement for change, or where we expect that the state is more concerned and more likely to kind of crack down and and be tougher on them. At the opposite side of the country, which would be Baluchistan, you have a minority that is Sunni, which kind of uh, sticks out. And again, almost even more on a kind of a more negligence than enmity, you can say that both the monarchy and the Islamic Republic have neglected the eastern provinces of Iran. These are most likely the absolutely poorest parts of Iran, the people that have least seen any kind of of generosity from the state in terms of investments. This is where a lot of the drug trade from Afghanistan and Pakistan comes. There are armed separatist movements in the same way that you would find in the Kurdish side. So this is definitely an area where there are lots of grievances and which then pop up when these things happen as well and where the state tends to be very heavy-handed. If I were to make an educated guess, I would say this is probably the single deadliest part of Iran, irrespective of protests. 
because this is where the soldiers get killed by the drug traffickers and where they in turn kill people as well. This is a very, very difficult area in that sense. The minority, if you want to call it that, that is in a sense not, I mean, there is Azerbaijani, Azeri nationalism, but that would be the nationalism I personally find the least sympathetic to because they are this the second largest group in Iran. And a lot of the people in the political elite that runs the country, irrespective of monarchy or Islamic company, are Azeri. So, you know, they're not marginalized in the sense that you would imagine a minority to be. So I would say that that is a group that if they were to decide to move in one shape or another when it comes to these events now, that could have an impact. But again, they are, I think, in that sense, just as well as representative as everyone else in Iran. And that means that, you know, they belong to all camps. They're not particular to this or that camp, as far as I can see. Wonderful. I just want to give you the final word. Are there things that we should be thinking about, that we should pay paying attention to, or that you feel are important messages and, and insights that are not getting the attention they should receive? Well, I think, I mean, I'm one of the people who, is, who are very skeptical to the idea of calling this a revolution. It's way too early to, to know where this is going to go. But I think that the huge challenge for Iranian society, not just the protesters right now, is to be able to pronounce and elaborate a way forward. And not because, you know, death to the dictator is, is sure. I think a lot of people can agree on that in Iran. That's fine. But that's not really an opening bid in a negotiation. And in my opinion, my hope is that the way forward would be some kind of negotiated transition, whether it's now or five years down the line, depending on how things develop, uh, because that would probably mean least bloodshed. Everything else is more or less going to be bloody. Yeah, and I can say as a political scientist, there's evidence that that's the most likely to, to succeed. So, again, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to us. I think it's been really enlightening and great to hear the more historical, long-term perspective on this. I think a lot of this is news bites that we get. It's been extremely helpful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Climate change and environmental justice might not have been topics previously associated with GLD. Still, the ever-crucial implication these topics hold for our common world has and will always be present. Climate change and environmental justice is often discussed and thought of as global issues that need to be tackled by international and national policy regulations. And as important the global perspective might be, GLD being GLD wanted to address these issues from a local perspective and see what the local responses are to policy regarding community-based adaption to climate change. And GLD did so by focusing on the Middle East and North Africa region during three policy roundtables that was co-hosted with the organization Alternative Policy Solutions at the American University of Cairo. And with me now, I have Thabit Jacob, postdoctoral researcher who has been working on local engagement with sustainable energy practices and has an interest in environmental politics in general. And also Khader Hussein, research associate at GLD, who is working on the MENA region in particular. Both of you have been working with these three policy roundtables on climate change and environmental justice in the MENA region. Can you tell us a bit about the background to why you decided to host a roundtable series on these topics in this area? Yeah, thanks a lot. So 
as you said, GLD teamed up with APS and the partners in the region, which my colleague Gadi will talk more about that later about the partnership. We did this because uh, recent studies have highlighted that the Middle East and North African region is climate stressed region. This is the region that is one of the most vulnerable to climate change. Uh, the region faces a couple of challenges such as droughts, water shortages, floods, landslides, uh, water scarcity, and quite a lot of other climate-related challenges. And these challenges, of course, have huge implications on lives of the people in the region. But I think, as you said, you know, at GLD, we wanted to highlight these issues from a local perspective. Uh, and I'm saying this because I think a lot of discussions around climate change usually have attracted discussion at the kind of focus on the most broader or macro international level discussions. We're not saying these are not important. They are very important. When I say macro and, and broader international discussion, I mean discussions related to international climate summits, the, the so-called conference of parties or the COPs, which, by the way, the Middle East and North African region is, is a very active participant. Uh, Morocco hosted COP 2022 back in 2016. Egypt is hosting COP 27 later this year. And next year, the United Arab Emirates will host the, the next COP. So these, these international summits have got this huge, broader mandate. And we're not saying they're not important. Usually you have big statement from global leaders. A lot of these discussions have attracted a lot of a great deal of frustrations because people feel like not so much progress has been made. But we thought it's really good to kind of move away from that and focus on the voices from the communities at the at the local level and see what are the sort of responses from, from countries in the region. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're highlighting some important points there about the macro perspective versus the local. Thank you so much, David, for your answer. So each roundtable had a specific focus. The first one was agriculture and local adaption to climate change. The second one was climate justice and equity. And the final one, land degradation and water scarcity. Why did you choose to focus on these specific topics? Uh, so first of all, I want to highlight that this is a collaborative project. GLD, together with APS, partnered with other uh, research centers and partners in the region. And the selection of topic was based on the discussion that we had with the different partners. And also we draw on their previous research and findings of recent studies in the Middle East to select the most pressing topics. We worked with four partners, the Center of the Environmental Studies and Research in Sultan Qaboos University in Oman. Institute of Environmental Studies and in the University of Khartoum in Sudan, and the Center of Climate Change and Environmental Technologies at the Arab American University in West Bank, Palestine, and finally the uh, Isam Ferris Institute of Public Policy at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. And we had several meetings before the roundtables, and we decided on the topics based on their expertise and their insights and different uh, findings of their own research and fieldwork in the region. Yeah, I just wanted to reiterate a very good point Gadi has made about the choices of partners. You know, as, as she said, you know, we really relied on the strength of these uh, local institutions. You know, what are they good at? Uh, and these folks in these countries have been very active uh, on these topics. So this is how we really thought. It, it, it was sort of like a peer-reviewed a process where we selected, I think it was more than initially more than 10 partners, and then we narrowed down the process to four, but very much relying on what these people are very good at, what they know and what they bring into the table. We also wanted to select partners in four different countries to get different insights in different local contexts. So our plan was to focus on different parts of the region. We have Sudan, we have Lebanon, we have Palestine, 
and Oman. So uh, the plan is to have different parts of the Middle East represented in this election so we can have uh, discussions from different countries and different contexts as well. Mm, yeah, I see. It was great to hear more about the collaborators, actually, that took part in this roundtable series. And thinking about that, you had a very clear vision of who to invite to this series and also the topic and the context behind it, wanting to focus more on the local perspective, taking that all into consideration. What would you say are the takeaways? Is there any specific discussion or point that caught your mind and that you want to raise here? So takeaways, a couple of takeaways, I think three things to that for me. So one, the first one is adaptation. I think it is became very clear that adaptation is most or more important than mitigation in the region. Our participant made it very clear that adaptation efforts have to be supported financially and politically by different stakeholders, including donors. But those are warning that you know donor support has to be scrutinized. The cases of elite capture, especially by international NGOs, which tend to claim to represent the interests of the voices of communities, but actually they don't do that. So there's also some issues to to, to think about there. The second takeaway was, um, I think this was very important, it was that communities across the Middle East and North African region are actually already adapting and also they are building their own resilience to climate change. They're doing this through local knowledge, through peer-to-peer learning networks. So I think there's this tendency, especially in the literature, to portray local communities as just victims. People were just on the receiving end of the impact of climate change, but actually they are already building their own resilience. And I think some of these local success stories need to be highlighted. The last one, I think, which really stood out was that we cannot ignore questions or issues of equity and justice. The consequences of climate change tend to affect people differently across class, race, ethnicity, and gender. So I think we must integrate uh, climate change, justice, and equity across environmental policies. Those are lively discussions in the second roundtable, which kind of really highlighted how countries in the region are not equal in many ways. You know, you've got countries, for instance, countries like Lebanon and Palestine. These are countries among those that are least likely to have resources to adapt to climate change. At the same time, you've got rich oil producing countries in the region that have got all the resources to to fight climate change. So these sort of local disparities in the region have to be highlighted. I agree with Thabit, vulnerability and marginalization are at the heart of climate justice discussion. During the roundtables, the speakers highlighted that some governments in the region, they don't have enough policies to address vulnerability and to address how climate is impacting different groups in different ways. But still, we think it's important and it's important for us to discuss it and to highlight how it matters at the local level. Another thing also to highlight from the roundtables is the idea of having central governments deciding for local communities. So one of the speakers in the roundtable was highlighting that central governments are always having policies and suggesting policies for local communities, even in remote cities. And sometimes they lack enough knowledge about how local communities function and what they really need, especially at times of crisis. So for one of the examples that we had is the floodings happening in Sudan and how different cities in different regions are affected. But sometimes they uh, wait a long time for support and for financial support, but also other uh, support that they need from the central government. So one thing that would need further investigation is studying how centralization and decentralization would actually uh, help local communities in different ways. Thank you, Tabit and Khader, for taking the time to tell us about this Policy Roundtable series on climate change and environmental justice in Demina. If any of the listeners out there feel interested in these topics or want to know more about 
these roundtables, where should they turn to? We have the three roundtables recorded and available on GLD YouTube channel. And also we have policy briefs highlighting the key messages from each roundtable. And we have them translated also in Arabic. So they are available in English and Arabic on GLD website. Next, we'll hear from the GLD associate Lauren Honig, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Boston College. Lauren researches the comparative political economy of development with a focus on the politics of poverty rights, the roles of informal and customary institutions, and state-citizen linkages in African countries. Ellen met with Lauren to talk about her new book, Land Politics, How Customary Institutions Shape State Building in Zambia and Senegal. In this book, Lauren examines land rights and plural systems of authority. Now, let's listen to how Lauren became interested in the questions around land, why she chose to focus on Senegal and Zambia, what her findings are, and finally, her main takeaways for political scientists and policymakers working on land and land titling. My name is Lauren Honig. I'm an assistant professor of political science at Boston College, which is located in Boston, USA. Again, thanks for having me here. Great to have you. And we're, it's also exciting to talk about your book, uh, which has just come out. And so congratulations on that. And it's, it's wonderful to see. Maybe if you can start by telling us how you became interested in the questions around land. Well, I initially became interested in the questions around land when I was living in Madagascar and then in Burkina Faso, even before I started graduate school. And I saw, particularly in rural communities, but really everywhere, just how important access to land was for individuals' livelihoods, but then also that there's really this complex picture of property rights. And while in the literature, I got the impression that, you know, we have these dual land tenure systems where it's a homogeneous system of customary rights and homogeneous system of statutory rights, what I was seeing is much more of a mix. And so I was initially inspired and curious to understand what the political implications are of that having a mixed property rights system. And then ultimately it came into trying to understand even how those property rights systems develop and how they change over time. Fantastic. And before we get to hearing about your findings, I'd like to note that you know your study is actually taking place in Zambia and Senegal, right? And you became interested in this in Burkina Faso and Madagascar. So why did you choose to do the study in Senegal and Zambia? Well, I can understand how it seems like a strange pairing. Um, I've certainly heard enough times, well, why those two countries couldn't be more different? And that's actually uh, why I chose them. So I was I was particularly interested in the British colonial legacy and the French colonial legacy on land relations and customary authority systems. And so the choice of two countries was really about having most different types of countries. And so initially, I did some field work in both of those countries in uh, 2011 and 2012. And when I really started the, the project in 2013, initially I was in Zambia and I was affiliated with the Indaba Agricultural Policy Institute in Lusaka, as well as uh, SIPAR in Lusaka as well. I had a dual affiliation. And I was really just so fortunate to have the support of both of those institutes in Zambia. And then in Senegal, I was affiliated with WARC, which is just a really important and, and supportive institution for researchers. And so I'm incredibly grateful to have had the opportunity to collaborate with all of these institutions during my fieldwork. 
And what did you do during your field work? So you can give us an idea of what a day in the life of Lauren Honig looked like during that time. Well, a lot of my field work was going to communities and interviewing chiefs, interviewing traditional counselors. So the sort of advisors and assistants and all the different types of traditional authorities, the actors that are within the traditional institution. So one of the things that I hope that readers will take away from the book is thinking more broadly about this set of different traditional actors, traditional authorities that are within customary institutions that the chief him or herself is not does not constitute the customary institution, but that these are institutions with sets of rules that structure everyday life and structure politics and economics and, and of course, property rights. And so there are lots of different actors that have different roles in there. Um, and so during the fieldwork, I was interviewing different traditional authorities. And then I also had focus groups of, of citizens who I was talking to. I met with a lot of people in the government, a lot of bureaucrats, uh, in order to understand some of the variation in where land titling was occurring, including how they selected their projects and the types of negotiations that they went through with chiefs. So it was really quite a lot of <laughs> different types of data collection and conversations and learning about the, the politics of land in these two countries. I think this question about or the ways in which you really untangle and make the customary authorities be more than or institutions be more than just a chief and a single individual, I think is is really, really important. Right. And it's really important work, not only for understanding land and land titling, but for really understanding the relationships between the state and customary institutions and customary authorities as well. Can you help us to understand what have you learned about why land titling takes different forms and, and more importantly, different speeds or uptake across these two countries and how these customary authorities in the state inter, in, engage? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that the, the big thing that I, that I learned and that I hope that readers will take away as well is, is to think about how changes in the types of property rights that people use are political themselves. In particular, this sort of shift from formalization to formalization or being under state authority as opposed to a customary authority, that this is not sort of a neutral intervention or a neutral shift, but that actually actors within the community institutions who potentially stand to lose power over enforcing property rights and controlling land, that they might have incentives to slow this process. And so trying to understand land titling, we really have to also understand both sides of this interaction. Um, that's not just the expansion of state land titling, but also are there trade-offs for community members, including in relation to, to power? And so in the book, I'm really focused on these customary institutions and the variations across them. So in both countries, we have a, this sort of variety of stronger institutions and weaker institutions. And, you know, I don't think that anyone who, any Zambian who, who reads this book or thinks about the project would be particularly surprised to learn that the institutions that were historically stronger, like Barotse Land Institution, it's much harder to access formal property rights there and to expand the state property rights there. Um, and what I find is more broadly that the places that have historically stronger institutions in both countries are just much better at retrain, retaining their control over land rights, whereas land titling is more likely to develop in the places that have weaker, historically weaker customary institutions. And so that's sort of the big picture 
story in terms of weak and strong institutions, but I also look at uh, how power is distributed within institutions. And so looking at shifting a bit to smallholder land titling, I find that those who disproportionately benefit from the continuing power of the institution, that they're less likely to seek out land titles and weaken that institutional power base. Whereas those who don't benefit from the power of the institution, who have lower status within the institution, that they just have much higher demand for, for statutory land titles. And so, again, thinking about the fact that there are consequences for this shift. There are political consequences and consequences related to power for shifting from informal and customary property rights to the state formal property rights that we need to be taking into account a bit more. I really hope that, you know, I see I see that there are some fundamental misunderstandings of the of what land titling is that you know this idea that everyone wants land titles uh that they're just constrained by access to resources or that formalization is naturally going to occur where the land values are are high enough or where the state actors decide it's a priority but i really try to show in this book how local actors on the ground chiefs customary authorities those who are embedded in customary institutions, that these really shape how state property rights change. And I think also one of the things that you show and that's really interesting is thinking about, as you said, community members, that they also have varied relations with the customary authorities and, and the, the customary institutions, and that some of them also don't see themselves as necessarily benefiting from state titling. So I think often people might present it as of course, the chiefs are against titling, state land titling, because that will reduce their power. But don't think that some of the community members themselves may also resist that uptake. Um, and I think that's a really important message that your work sends, to recognize that community members can also see customary institutions as both legitimate, but as also being superior in terms of safeguarding their rights and their power and their livelihoods. Yeah, absolutely. I have a lot of really interesting interview anecdotes in the book um, that that speak to this idea that, well, why do I need the state property rights if this is a land of my ancestors? Or even that there can be benefits to the customary system. And there is a history of seeing that in scholarship, particularly sort of the anthropology and the history uh, historians um, have talked about this, but we've seen it less so in political science. So I am sort of bringing that into thinking more broadly about power and political authority and how they're connected to date titling. And if you think about it, I mean, if you, it, we tend to think of state titling as the norm, right? But the majority of the population globally is actually living on land that is not state titled, which I think is escapes many, many people's attention, right? So this is not this kind of unique niche issue that might matter in Senegal and Zambia, but doesn't matter in much of the world. It actually matters a lot to the, the world's population as does the issue of multiple layers of authorities, right? State authorities and customary authorities and others, in a sense, kind of contest, contesting for power over the same individuals. Yeah, so it's very important. Uh, yeah, I think the prevalence of customary property rights, informal property rights, and different configurations of control over land and how people use them is really important. And we, we just need to understand it much better because it is the, the sort of dominance of 
state land titling, individual individualized property rights as the only way or the modern way to control land, it doesn't match with the reality on the ground for so many citizens in so many countries in the world. Exactly. So I guess if you're thinking about it, what's the primary message you want people like you and I, political scientists or those who are studying this, to take away from, from your work, either with regards to land titling specifically or customary authorities in, in the state or broader issues? What do you want us to learn? Do I only get one, Ellen? <laughs> you get as many as you want. <laughs> um, well, I would say that hope that some readers will see how this reveals the power of customary institutions and, and how customary institutions are part of the modern state. They're not a historical relic, but they're very much shaping key parts of citizens' lives, and they're also shaping state building and how it's occurring. And so one component you can see from the title of the book, How Customary Institutions Shape State Building, and it's very explicit there, that um, this these forms of land formalization and extending state land titling are a form of state building. And so to the degree that customary institutions are shaping this process, it, it's providing evidence of just how important these institutions are. And then the second one is just the idea that property rights are, are political. Changes in property rights are shifts in power and control over both that resource and also the people who are using them. And so any changes in these systems, in, in any advancement of land titling, you know, as policymakers are pushing for more land titling, we just need to acknowledge that there is a trade-off for some of the actors on the ground, oftentimes with land titling. And so incorporating them and figuring out when and where it is appropriate or in which context people are most interested in land titling, there is real variation in it. And so that's sort of the policy takeaway that it's not, that land titling is not a neutral intervention. And so we need to be really conscious of that as well. Fantastic. I want to again congratulate you. It's a fantastic book. It's extremely both important in terms of its message to both academics and policymakers but, and practitioners, but also is beautifully written, as is all of your work. So it's exciting. It's incredibly well-documented, very well-researched, and just an impressive piece of work, and congratulations. Thank you so much for those kind words and for having me on here. A lot of people contributed feedback and contributed to the actual process of researching this book. I want to acknowledge just how much of a, a debt I owe to other researchers and citizens on the ground and chiefs and bureaucrats. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to share this today with you. Thank you. That was all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoyed this new format. Please like and share the episode if you did, and feel free to drop us a note on any of our socials on what you would like to hear more about in our upcoming episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Mm -hmm.